Welcome to the Food Professor Podcast, Season 3, Episode 15. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm the Food Professor, Sylvain Chalabois. Well, Sylvain, you crossed a line that should not have been crossed this week on social media, tearing at the social fabric itself, advocating for crunchy craft peanut butter I know. instead of smooth... Now you could justify promoting that kind of product as a major faux pas there. I know. <laughs> I, and when I saw that jar of six eighty nine for two kilos, had to grab it. You know. The, yeah. You know what? This week I'm gonna like crunchy. Went to Twitter, said I hate crunchy, but this week I, I'm gonna like it. And people said, "What? What? You don't I, like crunchy? I don't do not you, like crunchy. I can't stand. I love peanut neither. butter. I can't, I can't stand crunchy. Thank you, crunchy. thank you. I think it's an abomination. <laughs> Sorry, exactly. Sorry. It's it's unfinished business, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what. I tell you what is not unfinished business. Uh, our very special guest on this episode is Vince Breton, president of Du Breton Pork, whose mission is to connect farmers to consumers." who value sustainability and animal welfare, specializing in the production and processing of organic pork. They operate four processing plants, one in the U- U.S., two feed mills, several farms in eastern Canada. You know, when you and I got together for my Last Request Barbecue show, we made guru ribs with right. rustic rustic pork, and they turned out pretty, pretty good, right? I know. They, they were fantastic, fantastic. So I'm happy that, uh, that Vincent was available. He's a leader, really. Uh, mm-hmm. He saw this, uh, his family saw this niche market uh, way back when, and uh, mm-hmm. and his company is doing so well. And, uh, you know, he's got the only pork which can be exported basically anywhere around the world, no restrictions whatsoever. Oh, I didn't uh, Because I didn't of that. the antibiotic. Yeah, so he's got an open market. Uh, of course, it's a bit on a pricey, pricey side, but still, uh, pork is a very, very affordable animal. Yeah, protein he talks about days. that. We'll get to that later in the show. Right. All right. Um, let's get right into the news. Picking up on our uh, interview with Josh Tetrick from Eat Just, I guess I wanted to call it Eat Just Less. Uh, lay- yes. <laughs> layoffs for the Eat Just folks. Eat I just they lost lean. About 20. Yeah, they're leaning it out about 20 people. You know, it's interesting because Josh. 40 people, Josh, actually. Yeah. How many? 40? 40, yeah. 40 people. Um, you know, I think, it, and, and, and you know, when we were talking to Josh, he was sharing success stories for their Just Eggs, uh, which is a plant-based uh, product and, and, of course, their cultivated meat products. Should we be making anything of this news? I think if, if, if there's any time to be successful with, a, with an, egg, uh, an egg substitute product in the States, given where they are, it, it would be now. But uh, should we make anything of this or is this just, you know, the puts and takes of capitalism? Well, yeah. So the uh, the anti plant based advocates are always saying, "You see, you see, the bubble is bursting." And then mm. Merit Foods, of course, closed its doors this week uh, in Winnipeg, unfortunately. And uh, we don't know what's going to happen. My guess is that it, it will reopen. Uh, uh, the the companies who uh, who are own owed money is like FCC at ninety five million dollars and uh, mm. and I think EDC is actually involved as well. They're not going to actually make make they they aren't going to close Merit Foods. But uh, yeah. generally speaking, I, I think this is there is a bit of a movement towards layoffs in the food industry in general. Mm. I think there's been more investments and and there's more right sizing going on. I think across the board. Uh, Tyson has actually laid off some people. Uh, Maple Leaf has actually laid off some people. So there are a few companies, uh, well-established companies, uh, mm. in the animal animal protein uh, space that have actually had to lay off some people. So I, I wouldn't make a big deal of it, but I know that 
media tends to focus on these startups because they represent something new and all of a sudden people may conclude that oh my goodness the bubble is bursting but i i, I wouldn't go that far what what did you, what were your thoughts well i mean I, I i see more distribution not less for the uh for the eat just egg uh product and and uh, you know i think it's uh, 40 people it's not easy for those people but there's the puts and takes of capitalism and by the way when you're starting up you buy you hire a bunch of people lots of talent to figure things yeah. out but at some point you just you just right size the place. So that's kind of what Elon, Elon Musk is doing with Twitter, by the way. I mean, he just bought this gigantic mm-hmm. thing and has basically right sized the whole thing based on mm-hmm. what he needs to do. So, Wait, t- tell me more about Merit Foods. So, I uh, tell me they're based in Winnipeg, uh, put into protection. So, who are they and what do they make? And and tell me just t- tell us, uh, me and the listeners, a little bit more about Merit. Well, it's an ingredient company for uh, for the plant. So they basically uh, they they process canola, uh, soy, a bunch of different ingredients, and uh, they were there to actually manufacture plant based uh, products, essentially. And so um, they were. That what in plant- your mind pulled them on? Like, what in your mind is this a similar kind of case? I mean, this is this isn't right size, and this is going into protection. Uh, yeah. in ostensibly well, Merit Foods is designed uh, the plant there is brand new brand new and it's designed to actually uh, increase its size by four times uh, its current size right now huh. so there's plenty of space there uh, Winnipeg uh, obviously uh, just uh, got Rocket uh, I think Nestle is also involved in that market uh, Merit mm-hmm. Foods so there's there's lots going on there, and uh, I, I just think I see it more as a bump in a road. Okay. Like I said, there's lots of lots of, uh, of of debtors that want to make this thing work. They do want to make this thing work as much as possible, and okay. uh, so. But I actually did meet the um, management company a few years ago when I was there. Very competent. I think it's a cash flow thing. Uh, it's just a matter of getting things going, okay. and it's always tough. I mean, the agribusiness world is tough, and, sure. and the one message I gave to um, to uh, Ed White, which is uh, who's a a Western producer reporter who called me up that morning saying that Merit Foods was closing. I was I was a bit sad, but at the same time, I think we need to get comfortable with failure. Well, mm-hmm. not comfortable with failure, but we, we need to we, – we shouldn't be afraid of failure. I mean it's yeah. it's a low-margin business, mm-hmm. and it, it is what it is. It's, it's tough. Yeah. And so if we want to grow our agri-food sector, we can't be afraid of failure. Yeah, I, and I would, I would almost reframe it as uh, don't be afraid of, of risk. I would say it's now the way um, society, capitalism, business is moving, I think – Standing still is more riskier than taking risks. Exactly. So, uh, exactly. Shout out to all the innovators and all the great yep. people that we talk to on a regular basis on the show who are taking risks. And sometimes they don't all work out, but uh, in the big scheme of things, hopefully it'll turn out better. Um, when pigs fly, so hanging pigs in Montreal, <laughs> I hear uh, you, you posted uh, Montreal's were startled to see frozen pigs hanging from an underpass. Wasn't that Re- disturbing? Well, it's, it's reminiscent of a scene from that movie, uh, Sicario, uh, you know, is Montreal the new Juarez for uh, pig oh my God. demonstrators. What's going on there? Who did that? And, and what do you make of that? Well, I can't remember the name of the group, but uh, this particular group is, uh, is quite extreme and uh, has used an extreme... Yeah. Uh, act to make a message essentially uh, for animal welfare. So they they hung three carcasses uh, under uh, Montreal uh, overpasses and uh, 
people saw that and uh, were wondering what what was going on and uh, no doubt. and I suspect that these carcasses went to waste so you're wasting food in yeah. order to convey a message about animal welfare I just don't, don't understand I mean, where, where do they get st- them to begin with like where, you don't go you don't go to a pet store and buy Pig carcasses. I mean, where where did they get these things to begin with? I, mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe the they stole them from a farmer or something. I, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, the bottom line is that there are some some uh, some animal welfare advocates out there who are are more respectful towards food in general. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just not. It wasn't really a. Um, a thing to celebrate i think it was just I, I don't think it was i think it was the wrong thing to do really did you you know, have to ask yourself now did a child pack your cheerios uh, it's a question americans and maybe some canadians are waking up to ask themselves the new york times investigation into immigrant child labor uncovers yep. thousands of teens and young teens working in a third-party co-packing in plant. the Hearth- united states of america Hearthside food solutions of course the co is appalled and and said you know we hold our third-party staffing agencies accountable so what do you what do you make of this? Is this is this uh, do you think this is happening in Canada? And is this the stress of cost and not enough people? What what would drive or businesses to to do this? I wouldn't be surprised if it's happening in Canada. But uh, I mean, when you have a brand, when you have an image, it's something something you want to think about. Uh, yeah. And and frankly, these reactions aren't necessarily great. I think we all know that there's a labor crunch out there. It's been difficult to hire. Mm. Uh, I mean. I have daughters that are uh, 14, 15, and, and, and they're working when we know because it's been hard for many companies and, 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 and places to hire. So I think it's uh, – we're in this crunch for a while. The yeah. recognition that, uh, that, uh, that labor is difficult is one thing. But just to deny and, and just passing the buck may, may not have been the right choice, uh, yeah. the right thing to do. But if yeah. you carry a big brand, a multinational brand, you absolutely yeah. want to be extremely careful with, uh, with who you hire, what's going on there. Let's take a break now from the news and get to our excellent interview with Vince Breton from Du Breton Pork. Vincent, welcome to the Food Professor podcast. How are you doing this morning? Good. Yourself? Well, it is a real treat for me, literally and uh, and figuratively, uh, to chat with you. I'm a big fan of your product. I have to tell you, I as an homage <laughs> to your to your coming on the show, I, I cooked a very fun uh, pork roast last night, and uh, it was delicious. I have to tell you, we I, you know what I, you know what I put around it? I put lime, chipotle mustard, and everything bagel seasoning, and then smoked wow. it. Yeah. Very fun, very fun. No, Michael's a fine chef. Yeah, big fan <laughs> of uh, big fan of uh, of your products for sure. Why don't we start uh, at the beginning? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to do what you do and and what you do now for a living. So uh, my name is uh, Vincent Breton. So I'm the uh, president of uh, Du Breton. So uh, Du Breton is a family company that uh, my grandfather started in uh, 1944. And uh, basically, um, my father took over in the 60s, and um, we've been in ply in the, um, over the years in the egg business, in the feed mill, in, um, in the poultry business. And uh, I would say that lately, uh, for the last 20 years, we have mainly focused on the niche pork business. So we have sold many of the, um, the company that we had, and we streamlined our operation. And now uh, what we are really about is um, uh, 
producing the finest organic pork in the world, the finest uh, pork product in the world, and trying to add value to it. And um, and so now we're implying in the farming. We're still implying the feeding of the animals. Um, we have a feed meal to uh, basically mm. service our own farms. And um, we do also a little bit of process with a uh, couple of plants, one in the U.S. and one in Canada. So we're really about um, adding value to the animal, to the pork, and we're trying to do things differently. So that's so, basically what we're all about. So when you when you say uh, so the farms, I'm I'm going through your your website. You've got a very clear brand message connecting farmers to consumers. Just to be clear, you don't own any farms, or you do own farms, or you just yeah, supply we the do farmers. Own farms. Oh, okay, we do own farms. Mm-hmm. You know, not all the farms that we process the animal from, mm-hmm. but I would say maybe thirty percent of it. Okay. Now you uh, you know with the with the background, you would have had many choices to go in many different directions as you said you weren't always just in in pork but tell me a little bit about why you chose this path what what was it about this path that you thought would be the most interesting for the business and 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 the most interesting for for consumers yeah it basically started at the end of the 90s um we had some challenges and we knew that quebec was not the best place to be a low-cost producer uh, because of regulation, um, mainly, I would say, and because also of the temperature, obviously, and the, and the tough winter that we have. So compared to Western Canada and compared to Western U.S., we knew that our cost will always be higher. We knew that having access to cheap grain, which represent, you know, a high percentage of the um, the cost of, the, of, of producing an animal, especially in the pork business, I mean, we knew that we could not be the best uh, company out there. So uh, we start to look at some alternatives. So how could we, then the, the thought process start, how can we different, uh, differentiate ourselves? So in a trip in Japan uh, at that time, I think it was in 97, I was meeting with some customer and then we got a request uh, from a company asking to have uh, meat or pork coming from animals that do not have uh, certain diseases. At that time, they were listing five or six diseases and they were calling the product specific pathogen free. Mm. So this is all this, you know, this is the way. So I grabbed that opportunity. And is, is, that, we, is that trichinosis? Is that do I have that right? Is that was a, no, uh, no, no, it was uh, it was more uh, uh, the PRRS, I think, in English that uh, in, in other type of diseases that the customer did not want the meat mm. coming um, did not want to have the meat uh, coming from those animals. Mm-hmm. So we were implied at that time still uh, in the um, in gen- genetic side of the selection side of the animals with genetic pork, which we sold later. But um, uh, we had the opportunity because of our very clean herds to service that, uh, that specific customer. And this is how we started. And then I thought to myself, if there's a market in Japan there's certainly a market somewhere else. And when we um, uh, start looking at the U.S. market, we now uh, we then got involved with um, a company like Applegate Farm, which has been sold later to our mail food. We've been implied with uh, Old Foods Market, with, mm-hmm. which was a great success at that time and gr- growing very quickly. And and then the rest is history because we uh, we learned a lot from those people. And then uh, you know our product line evolved. 
And then the certification came on board and so forth. But this is how we started, basically. Mm. When you look at, so you you you're, you have a niche product, uh, a premium product. Uh, so how do you, how do you ensure that your pigs are raised organically, and uh, and how how's, how does your certification process work, really? I would say that in the last 20 years, certification processes in, uh, improved a lot. I mean, it started, I remember when we started at Whole Food, I mean, um, the company was uh, very, um, I would say, decentralized. So you would have a buyer coming from one region, visiting your farm and accept, accepting the, 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 the farm network, uh, looking at a sample of your farms and your practices and basically, the um, the audit process was uh, not as strong as it is right now. Over the years, what they have done is they have been implied with different um, third-party certification process, and they even found and financed one, which is Global Animal Partnership. Uh, now there's and, and and that certification process is basically based on the, on ASAP and ISO nine thousand, you know, process where you really have, they visit the farms on on a 15-month basis. All the farms are verified. The production protocols are written very clear. You know, it works like all the quality control system that we have in our plants, whatever it's uh, um, with CFIA, we, with USDA. I mean, all those, um, those third-party certification did invest a lot of money and a lot of uh, effort in their process. So today we uh, the Breton pork has mainly depending on the program uh, tree certification, uh, the organic certification which is regulated and um, and uh, we do have we do use two third party certification body the Global Animal Partnership which is mandatory to sell to all food, and the other uh, party that we use is Certify Humane which we started in two thousand two or two thousand three which is also uh, where, you know, they sample a, um, a 10% of your herd every year. And then they, um, mm-hmm. they, uh, they basically uh, do a visit and audit of the farms, the plant, the transportation, everything is, mm-hmm. is uh, going under the, uh, the loop. And the reason we're using two certification is that um, in the past and still now, the uh, sort of uh, the global animal partnership certification has been linked with all uh, food, so other retailers were viewing that as a basic, basically all food process, and did not want to, I would say, promote the way all food was doing things. Um, which is my point of view is kind of uh, understandable, but um, it's really a tough process, and um, internally. So that's basically what we rely on. We rely on, on the third party, but we also have a uh, in-house team. So before you know, we do our own uh, uh, audit internally um, with uh, our own people. So uh, so that's a tough process. I mean, that's right. the toughest process we've go- where we've been going through. Mm-hmm. The as you know, uh, Vincent, uh, there's lots of attention given to living conditions for for farm animals, including pigs. Uh, for people who are not familiar with uh, the Du Breton product and uh, and your standards, uh, could you tell us more about 
about your pig's living condition in general. What's the difference between a Dubreton uh, hog versus a hog in in uh, raised in other ways? Yep. Basically, the certification that we're going under, whatever it's certified humane and in GAP, which is uh, pretty similar in terms of uh, claims or in terms of the way you raise the animals. First thing is the space. Okay, so we're giving a lot more space to the animal. Um, the sow, you know, we don't have any. Um, uh, we're we're uh, we're managing our farm under a loose sow housing, but not necessarily the way the the the, the commodity industry or the the main industry handle it. Um, there's no flowering crate. There's no gestation crate. When people are talking or the industry or the or the customer, the big. Um, Retail chains are now talking about space. They're just talking about the gestation crate, but we don't have any any uh, flowering crate either. So it means that the animal has a the sow has a lot more freedom, so she can turn around. Uh, all the stages of the of the production include bedding, so they're raised on sawdust or bedding, so they mm-hmm. they cannot be raised on on concrete hard concrete floor. Um, and they uh, are given two to three times more space at each stage of the uh, of the raising practices. And for the organic, uh, the difference with the sort of humane or gap or the, what people call the natural is the animals are going outside. So the space is really a big component. Uh, the second big component is the feed. Um, there's no antibiotics at any stage, no animal byproduct at any stage. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no um, hormone or any product that are not natural that are given to the animal. And obviously, in case of uh, the organic, uh, the organic the, the grain needs to be certified organic. So it means that they have had, uh, uh, been grown without the use of pesticide. So, so you get the mm. space, you get the feed component, then you get all the, um, the physical alteration. Uh, we do not um, uh, clip the tail. We do not uh, clip the teeth of the animal. The only thing we're doing is the castration because of the flavor of the product. Uh, but uh, we have to give a product before we're doing it. We're doing it a little bit differently than the commodity business is doing it. So physical alteration is another big component. Uh, space, food, and uh, physical alteration are a lot different. You have to know that raising an organic animal costs uh, twice, sometime, depending on the cost of the grain, three times the cost of a... Twice a, or three times, eh? Wow, yeah, man. the cost of a commodity animal. I, I'm sure you're concerned about ASF. Uh, there's lots of talks, obviously, about ASF in the industry. You're concerned as well, I'm sure. Yes, it's a little bit funny, though, because all the industry, they're talking about... Uh, birds migrating birds or or wild pigs while the risk number one is i mean we have a lot of livestock trucks going in the u.s uh, and they're coming back and they're not washed Mm. so the biggest concern or the biggest risk in my point of view is being able to wash the truck at the border coming back from the u.s and this risk is known for many years and it is not manage so you don't think we're doing enough no we start with i mean 
there's a lot of politics involved in my point of view. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what the whole show is about. We we know that yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's they, they call it preparedness. I mean, ASF mm. preparedness. And then they spend a lot of time of talking about wild boar. They spend a lot of time of uh, talking about the risk of uh, the birds that are that migrates from uh, from the U.S. to Canada that are representing a risk. And even, and you know what, at the moment, the, the commodity industry do not want to recognize the organic uh, production. They feel that there's too much risk because uh, we're sending the animal outside. And we probably have one of the herds that is the LTS herd in, in the old mm-hmm. country. And, um, and now we're fighting with them for that reason to be included in the zoning and compartment, all complicated regulation that they're trying to, to put on place, but let's be honest. If the U.S., it's a game of, uh, of who's going to catch it the the last one. Because if the U.S., you know, uh, turn positive ASF, in my point of view, the, the only choice that Canada has is to open the borders and 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 do like if it uh, was not existing, or because the U.S. represents so a big market, you Such cannot a big market for us, yeah. Yep. Yeah, you can't close the border and expect that the business will continue or that you will save the business. I mean, mm-hmm. the um, consumer. Let's go back to the consumer in the market. I mean, uh, pork is uh, certainly a product that I think personally has a lot of uh, advantages right now, given what's going on with food prices and everything else at the meat counter. How, how do you see the the consumer over the next twelve to 24 months, uh, how do they think they'll be spending their money on, on, on meat, animal proteins in general? And, and does that favor Du Breton? And, and if so, how? I, I mean, that's, um, that's a very good question. And we're always asking ourselves question about that. I mean, in my point of view, talking about the consumer as a uniform group is a mistake. Hmm. Uh, and, and this is, what we've been telling people and, uh, and, um, and our employees, our people, our partners, I mean, you need to look at different niche. Um, what I see is we still have some growth and, um, and the U.S. market is still on fire. We still have a lot of uh, customer looking um, uh, for meat that is different. Um, we still have big driver, like all food is still a driving machine. They're still, you know, well, looking to grow their business uh, with the uh, with Amazon. They're mm-hmm. owned by Amazon now. And we have customers like Chipotle Mexican Grill that we're doing business for a long time that have uh, always been a great advocate of the animal welfare improvement at the farm level. And they've been uh, putting a tough standard on place that uh, we're meeting for a number of years. Uh, we have uh, gone through the IKEA highway certification process that takes care of the um, animal welfare aspect also. So the business on, I mean, more and more consumer are really concerned about how the animal are raised and they want to have a look and they want the company to be responsible. And on the other side, you get all this economical pressure where people mm. are, are looking for value. That this is why it's a good question, and I have mixed uh, challenge on it. And we see, especially here in Quebec and Canada, people looking for bigger portion, which is, in my point of view, I don't know if it's going to last because it's uh, bigger portion. Are, yeah, yeah, I mean, like uh, 
Uh, you see in IGA or you see um, now at Metro, they want to compete against Costco and they put a big loin oh, in the bulk, counter. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, massive, yes, massive uh, pork butts. Yeah, big, big uh, St. Louis cut ribs that you can get there. Huh? And yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so let, let me follow up on, on one thing you said. So um, there are standards that you uh, adhere to and you're very active on social media. So I pick up some of the threads of your thinking. What you know, as you say, no cust- customers are different, right? Some are looking for larger portions. Some are looking for a different price point. They're very price point driven. Um, what kind of the? Where do you think there's an intersection of the two, where your standards and principles on how you operate can become the norm and in pork and food production? And and is there a role for the Canadian government and and the grocers really? As you said, Whole Foods and I buy your product at Longos, for example, but it's available broadly. Is is there a role for everyone to get together to elevate? The industry, so that what is it? What do they say that um, the, the you know that the that the products uh, you know that the pigs can have a great life and one bad day kind of thing? That that's again a very good question and not uh, easy to answer because mm-hmm. most of if you take the average consumer, they don't know what's going on on the farm. They don't know that maybe eighty percent of the hogs raised in Canada are raised in the dark. They don't know that if they don't have a, there's no window in the farms. Uh, the only time they have uh, they have a chance to see the light is through the fan when the fan are running during the summer and during the winter. I mean, when they heat the building, I mean, they don't see much of the light coming from the coming from the, the sunlight. So those type of things are, and the raising practices in terms of space, in terms of cage, in, in terms of product given to the animal. Uh, another example, I mean, uh, I know that they don't like uh, us to call it this way, but the chemical castration. Do you know that chemical castration is used on female at the moment as a growth promoter? Mm. It's, it's done in Canada. Wow. So mm. people, consumer in general, do not know that. So that's one thing. Some of the consumer have been driven by leaders of the industry and advocates. And we can name Old Food. We can name Chipotle Mexican Grill. We can name some retailer that are putting some, I would say, responsibilities policy on place. And now what we see, what is new, and you probably heard about it, the um, some government are, are, and especially in the States, some states are, are putting some regulation in terms of animal welfare. And uh, we can use the Prop 12 in California as an example. So the pressure is coming from different places and different group. And I think that uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that it helps, you know, raising the, the practices of the old industry. And uh, but, you know, there are always consumers that are going to be driven by value and others are going to be driven by mm-hmm. brand, by mm-hmm. quality of the product or by something else. But I must say that organic, in my point of view, and or whatever it's rustic or certified, you know, animal welfare certification are becoming more and more the norm or are, um, I would say, having a higher presence on the shelf. And I think it's a good thing. So people learn more about how their product is uh, processed. But some people just don't have the, uh, the ability to buy those products or the, the, uh, the financial right. ability to, uh, to buy what they would like to buy. So. Right. right. In terms of price points, just to be clear, uh, what's the difference between, say, your product versus, say, uh, other conventional products we would find at the meat counter? Well, what's, the, what's the difference? 
And you know what? There's a wide range depending on the cuts because, um, I mean, uh, not uh, cuts are... Uh, we're not able to add value on all the cuts. So um, as an example, the tenderloin, since it's very popular, will be mm. two, three times on the organic, but the certified humane or the uh, the GAP certification will be more two times. And when we look at ground pork, sometimes we could be only 10, 15, 20% higher than, than average pork uh, product. And uh, so there's a, uh, there's a range depending on the cuts. Let's talk about what's next. That's the last question for you. What's next? Uh, what's next for the business? I mean, I see you, you've expanded in the U.S. and and how do you see growth? If if that's a priority, or what's your what's your focus? Our priority has been to um, basically get out of the commodity business. We wanted to, and this part has been done now. The only animal that we process are um, raised without antibiotics. They are raised under uh, animal welfare certification or they're organic. So. That, that was the first goal. Um, the second goal is to balance the sales. It's tough. Huh? It's not easy. So um, th- this is why we're trying to encourage people to, um, to vote with their feet and, and with their wallet. So if they're looking for, if they care about animal welfare, uh, about real animal welfare without any bullshit, I think that we are the only alternative um, because we have no cage, because uh, because of what we do, because of the space, because of the bidding, because of the investment that we have done, uh, we took big risk and we invest over a million, uh, hundred million dollar in our farm network wow. transformation and on premium wow. we're giving to the farmers. We're paying producer, you know, according to cost of production, even if sometimes it's creating issues. But um, um, so so we're tr- really trying to sell the whole animal and become more present in the retail space whatever it's in Canada, in the U.S., we're trying to make customer and people accountable for their opinion. Say, hey, you want you want to have a, a, a stake in animal welfare. You want to help the you know, company to change. You know, if you want that, you need to, you know, you need to encourage a company that are doing the right things. So we're really trying to be an authentic company and, and walk the talk. So that's basically what we're trying to do. Well, listen, Vincent, thank you so much for joining us today uh, on the Food Professor podcast. Uh, I mean, it's it's just great that you that uh, that you're you've took taken over a, a family business, a third generation, and uh, it's such a great product. Uh, we're both fans of your product, so uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, right. Uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate, and um, and I'm also, you know, I've listened to your podcast, and I follow you. I follow the Food Professor on uh, also on Twitter, and uh, sometimes I comment. So I think we're having fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, and we don't uh, have to agree on everything. It's just it's no, important no, that we that, actually have debates on issues. Yeah, and and like the last one, I mean, and maybe to end on this, have you seen the? Um, the uh, I've seen a video on TikTok, you know, uh, someone doing a, a meat-based uh, plants. That was so funny. I shared it with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't seen it, but uh, yeah, there's there's lots of lots going on uh, with animal yeah. protein or in the protein world in general. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and anytime you want to discuss about something else about labeling. How I think that our labeling system is not very good and doing a bad job for consumer and misleading. I mean, uh, any topics that you want to talk in the food industry or in the meat business, you know, uh, that will be a great pleasure to come back and uh, and uh, and uh, give you my two cents on it. <laughs> All right. 
Oh, fantastic. Thanks again for joining us, Vincent. Take care, Vincent. Thank you. Well, as, as you probably heard, as the listeners probably heard, I'm a big fan of the product. I said that at the beginning. I cook with it on my show and That's you know, right. have a lot of fun with it. Uh, and it was great listening to, to Vince and him. You know, he's a no-nonsense guy, right? I mean, he's working oh, yeah. in a niche, uh, and he, uh, he talks about some other things that happen in the industry. And, and uh, anyways, fantastic to have his perspective. Oh yeah, no, absolutely great uh, stuff. It's uh, it's funny uh, that uh, we had him on uh, this week, and we had Yannick Jarvet, the president of the Olimel, yes. uh, a few months ago, and his his model is so different, mm-hmm. night and day. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, we know what's going on. Olimel, it's been they've been struggling, uh, they're restructuring, whereas at at Du Breton things are hunky dory. Well, yeah. it's an interesting business case because you know uh, Olimel competes against a large global infrastructure of mass production of work whereas uh vince is competing against a very narrow segment and uh, that's very interesting right very interesting exactly uh, all right so we're coming up to the uh the third anniversary of covid so i thought it worthwhile to take a few minutes and take stock so to speak of you know what are your thoughts and kind of you know, Actually, what, three uh, years ago, we had this idea. Uh, we had the idea right. for the podcast. That's right. You yeah. and I were sitting at the Restaurants Canada show, and uh, we kicked it around. But we were all thinking, we were looking around, and I remember talking to you about this and uh, some other folks. I'm like, does everybody not know what's coming here? <laughs> like, it, I, I, you know, not that I have you know better sense of some things, but I had a pretty good sense. There was a bad thing about to happen. There was a feeling. Yeah, there was a feeling. It was for more sure. than a feeling, oh, yeah. you know, there in Boston, but it's more, it was, <laughs> it was, it was more than a feeling. I was talking to retailers who are like, it's bad in China and it's going to get bad here. Anyway, aside yeah. from that, we know how bad it got. We know, uh, what happened. Uh, we had, you know, restaurants shut down. We had huge transference of consumption to grocers. Yeah. And, and now as you, as you reflect now, what are the structural changes that have that have taken place that we should kind of mention? I see more takeout in fast food. I see people working less downtown. That's got to impact yeah. you know, where people locate. So what, what have you been thinking about? I think, uh, I mean, people are coming back a little bit. You know, the work from home thing is still there. I don't think it's going to go back to what it was. Uh, but uh, things, and, and things have changed. I, I think... I think the one thing that has changed the most is how we assess risks uh, as, oh, okay. as people, especially the younger generations. And uh, I have young children. I can tell you there's been some changes in my household in terms of uh, how they deal with society when they go out. Uh, when we go out as a family, it's, uh, you know, you can feel the anxiety. And, and that's going to that's gonna impact the marketplace for a very long time, I think. Even adults, I think, do assess risk when they're traveling, when they get out of the house, when they go to a restaurant, when they go. Yep. That, I think that psyche has completely, completely changed. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, you know, listen, at the end of the day, I think, uh, you know, my observation of the, you know, the restaurant industry completely missed an opportunity to restructure itself away from what, the problems that were plaguing it, I think they just kind of just picked up yeah. where they left off, and I think they're going to pay for that uh, over over the course of time. And I well, think they are people, they are paying for it. Yeah, um, in 2022, we basically for every restaurant opening, two were closing in Canada. Yeah. I, and, I you know if I I think you're going to see fewer restaurants 
and just more drive-throughs and more home delivery because people are like, yep. you know, listen, I, I think that's a, that, that could be a structural change. Anyway, something for us to keep an eye on. Well, let's yep. talk about the next uh, global pandemic uh, that may be happening and getting started. New York Times has called the outbreak of avian influenza in the U.S. the biggest in U.S. history. What is it, like 58 million farm birds in 47 yep. states have been killed? Uh, it's already spilling over into other mammals, minks, foxes. Again, back to Josh Tetrick talked about the, the, yep. the way that these things start. You know, H5N1 could mutate, could. I mean, you know, in the world of assessing risk, it happened. It's happened twice. We had SARS. We had COVID. Yep. What do you think? The, the price of eggs in the States is up like 70%. Yeah. I have two questions for you. What do you make of all this? And two, why aren't we seeing that in, that kind of stress in Canada? Well, it's because we honestly, uh, it's. I think it's about vertical coordination. Farmers are talking to processors. They're recognizing symptoms. They don't hesitate to uh, to declare. It's the vertical coordination that has been um, uh, institutionalized through our quota system. Uh, mm. I think supply management has a big. Upside. Has been a big component, mm. uh, an upside. Yeah, if you talk to uh, Margaret Hudson from mm-hmm. Brimbury, I suspect that she would say the same thing, and I would agree with her. I now, actually do you, think do you have a sense of of I I haven't been tracking it. Um, do you have a sense of the price of eggs in Canada? That I don't think they've gone up seventy percent. Yeah, I actually can tell you right now. Uh, so uh, eggs are up uh, from last year, 17%. One seven, one seven. Yeah, one seven. And in the U.S., it's six zero, yeah. 60%. So it's very different. And for chicken, hmm. look at the differences. It's depending of uh, – so for breasts, 2%. For legs, for ties, 14%. And mm. in the U.S., they're having our time finding anything. Drumsticks, chicken drumsticks, one percent, basically the same price as last year. Huh. Interesting. So the sector hasn't been impacted all that much by the avian flu. And I think it's because people are talking to each other, mm. they're cooperating, they're declaring, and uh, so we'll be fine, absolutely. But it's it's really the one thing that is keeping people up at night and yeah. uh and we talked about about asf it's the same thing in uh in yes. pork it's yeah, just yeah. a matter of time before it happens and when it happens it's going to be devastating for for the pork industry uh let's move on uh tiktok may be a tool of the chinese global surveillance uh, world <laughs> and, and influence apparatus uh but right now it's driving food innovation so uh, mcdonald's new chicken big mac there's an article this week in toronto life that uh, the canadian innovation chef jeff anderson the chain senior manager of culinary innovation noticed it, saw it, and then turned the fan recipe into a menu item. Isn't this fascinating, right? Yeah. Starting uh, starting early March, Torontonians will be able to have a chicken Big Mac and started on March seventh. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you make of all this? Like, it's uh, it's so interesting that uh, TikTok isn't just influencing uh, you know what we cook, but uh, you know maybe there's an upside to TikTok. It's creating food innovation, which is really the people creating food innovation fascinating oh yeah no absolutely i mean tiktok is behind the butterboard it's behind <laughs> all sorts of new ideas yeah. uh yeah. I mean, when, you get, when you get people together you get people to think and uh and it's not i'm not necessarily against that of course uh i know a lot of people are talking about tiktok and and china and surveillance and all yeah. that stuff yeah. but i'm just yeah. our show is not about that it's more about innovation it's about uh and how do you get ideas and and frankly so, so social media gets people to think, which is which is really great. So and McDonald's 
the one thing we've learned over the years is never bet against McDonald's. Yeah. Never. Never. They're always going to figure something out. Every time, if I had a dime, or every time I heard someone, oh, McDonald's done, they're going to close. <laughs> you could buy a lot yeah. of Big Macs with that, uh, with that sentiment, right? Exactly. Um, shout out to Jeff Anderson, by the way, the, the culinary innovation. He is from, wait for it, Coal Harbor, Nova Scotia. Uh, hey, so I did not part. know that. Yeah, you went and, to the Culinary Institute of and Canada. And who else is from Cole Harbor? Oh, Sydney oh. Crosby. Sydney Crosby. Listen, well, great episode. Uh, pile of fun. Lots going on next week. We'll be back on the mic, of course, and we'll have a, uh, a debrief on the grocer's testimony in front of the parliamentarians. Yeah. We'll be able to kick that Are you going to watch around. the Oscars? Uh... You mean the, the – uh, well, I'm not going to watch the Oscars. I'm going to watch the grocer's uh, testify. I don't care about the Oscars. I want to watch the grocer's. <laughs> I think it's going to be more – I think there's Sunday. more drama there. Come on. <laughs> I think there's, I think there's we'll, more we'll drama there. We'll have a nice there. snack. Like we're, we'll, we'll, we'll have a nice yeah. meal as a family yeah. and watch uh, nice. you know, the red carpet, nice. all the things that we can't afford to buy. All right. Well, listen, uh, this is another great episode. I uh, For anyone who has – Forgotten, I'm Michael Blanc, consumer growth consultant, uh, keynote speaker, and podcaster. And you are? I'm the food professor, Sylvain Chalabois. See you next week, uh, Sylvain. Everyone, see you next week. We have more great guests and lots of great stuff to talk about. Bye-bye. Right, take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>